Uh, Galatians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 20. Galatians 4, 18 through 20, and when you've uh, arrived there, if you'll stand out of reverence for God's word as we read Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20, I'll give you a moment to get there. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, but in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You are observing special days, months, seasons, and years. I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. I beg you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I also became like you. You have not wronged me. You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh. You did not despise or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing? For I testified to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So then when I became your or so then have I become your enemy because I told you the truth. They court you eagerly, but not for good. They want to exclude you from me so that you would pursue them. But it is always good to be pursued in a good manner. And not just when I am with you, my children, I am again suffering labor labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we consider this text and consider the dangerous reality of abandoning grace, that you would help us, Father, even as we walk through our lives to not turn around, to not go back. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Again, it's good to see you, excited to be back with you, excited to be continuing through our series in the book of Galatians entitled, Getting Back to Grace, Getting Back to Grace. And the title of this morning's sermon, as you might have seen in the bulletin or picked up even there in that prayer, the title is, Don't Turn Around, Don't Turn Around. And again, I'm excited uh, to, to walk through this text with you, and the reason I'm excited is because what we see in our text this morning is a strong warning, but it's also a helpful for reminder to us that as we live lives that are meant to celebrate grace, there is a real temptation for us to abandon that which grace produces. This text again warns us not to revert back to our old ways when things get tough. And what this text shows us is what it looks like when this happens. When we turn from grace and start to pursue again the old way of life, what it looks like. So this morning, through this text, I have one main aim. I want to challenge you as clearly as I can that as you walk through this life, specifically when you are in seasons of hardship and trial and struggle pain and anguish, I want to encourage you and challenge you, don't turn around. Don't turn around. Now, some of you know this about me. Um, If you know me well, you know that I I really like sports. Uh, 
not in an unhealthy way. We know those people, right, that like love sports in a really unhealthy way. Like they could tell you pretty much anybody's shooting percentage or uh, you know any QB's rating or any pitcher's ERA. Uh, you know that I'm not like that into it because I had to look up an example of a pitching stat to put ERA in there because I didn't even know what it was. So, but, but I enjoy sports. I really enjoy playing them more than anything. And one of the sports that I love to play uh, is basketball. Uh, it's one of my favorite sports to play. A uh, funny story, I've shared this with some of you, but my wife one time watched me play basketball, and her comment to me was, your basketball's a lot like your preaching, surprisingly good when you look at you. Uh, so I didn't know if that was a compliment or an insult, um, but my wife said that too. I told her I was going to tell that story, and she's going to be like, everybody's going to think I'm a horrible person. And I joked, well, they already know you, so they know it's true. No, uh, just kidding. I'm picking on her, and she's not even here this morning. How horrible is that? Um, but I enjoy playing basketball, and, and I was decent at it once. Now I'm getting older, and so I'm not quite as good as I once was. But uh, I, I like playing basketball. I've had the privilege of actually coaching basketball. Uh, I've coached uh, elementary schools, uh, elementary school age kids. I've coached middle school students. I've coached high school students. And one of my favorite groups to teach is typically high school students. The reason for that is they're, they're at the age where they've, they've developed enough of that coordination. They've, they've developed enough that they can be really good at basketball. And so one of the things that we start with really early on when we start practicing, right? You start practicing long before the season. We, we work on a lot of the fundamentals of basketball, right? Some of these basic things that you have to get down. And what we start to do is we start to build plays and patterns and, and things for them to implement in a game to help them win. Right? And, so, and so we train and we work on kind of getting rid of old basketball habits and replacing them with new basketball habits, ones that will help them when they enter into the game. But I started to observe the most fascinating phenomenon when I coached kids in basketball. When things were going really well, they could keep up with some of those things we worked on, right? That they could keep those good techniques, the things we'd worked on, uh, because they were winning the game. But I noticed that the moment that they started to get their tails whipped, they reverted back to all of those bad habits that they had. They started to play like they played before we started to practice. They'd start being ball hogs. They'd start trying to do things that they shouldn't do on the court or that's well above their skill level, but they saw somebody doing an NBA game. And so they reverted back to their old ways, and they inevitably lost the game. I mean, they were already losing, but they, they lost the game. Now, the reason that I tell you all of this is because our Christian walks are often a lot like those kids that I coached. We work at and we practice and we grow in new patterns that will help us look more like Jesus. But the moment that things get difficult, the moment that times get tough, there is a real temptation to turn back to those old patterns and the old way of life in order to try to find relief from the struggle that we are in. You know, Ephesians 4, 22 and 25 tells us that in Christ, we are called to take off our former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and to put on the new self. 
The one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. So the Christian life is marked by this process that we call sanctification, right? Sanctification is a really fancy word for being made more in the image of Jesus. And our Christian life is meant to be marked by sanctification. What that looks like is we are putting off old patterns. We are putting off things that remind us of the old man that was crucified with Christ. And we are putting on more and more attributes and characteristics and patterns. Patterns that mirror Jesus. That's what the Christian life is meant to look like. But here's where it gets interesting. Again, like growing as a basketball player, growing to look more like Jesus is not an easy process. And again, the reason why it's not easy is because more than we may be aware, we are tempted to revert back to the old ways. And again, this is especially true when things get difficult. And what we see in our text this morning is that in the midst of hardship, in the midst of struggle, the churches in Galatia have abandoned the new things that grace produced in their lives, and they are turning back to the old ways. Now, let me again remind you, especially for some of you who are jumping in in the middle of the series, where we've been in the book of Galatians so far. So Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia, to multiple churches. And we talked about early on that they're in the midst of the perfect storm. There are three major problems they are facing. The first problem is that they are in the midst of real hardship, real pain, and real persecution. Reminder to you, we can sometimes forget this in, in kind of our Western culture living in this century, but for to be a Christian back when the churches in Galatia were trying to be Christians welcomed an enormous and unprecedented amount of persecution. And so they were feeling pain for being Christians. They were struggling, it was hard, and it was difficult. And so they're in the midst of that. And they're questioning whether or not the grace of God that they've believed in is enough to hold them through. That's what they're wrestling with. But not only that, they're also facing false teaching. So these, these individuals called Judaizers have come in and started teaching the churches in Galatia. And basically what they're teaching them that is that you're not actually made right with God by grace because in order to be made right with God, you actually have to keep the law. And in essence, they're calling these Christians to keep the law in order to be made right with God. And then the third thing that they are facing and what, we'll, what we've seen and what we will see more even in the end of the book is that they were facing a real fear of man. The churches cared more about what people thought of them than of what God did. And so all of these things are colliding and these churches are just struggling. And so Paul, who loves these churches, who helped plant these churches, who has invested blood, sweat, and tears into these churches, is writing them to call them back to grace. He's writing to call them back to grace. And so Paul in this text this morning, is going to call them back to grace as he confronts the fact that they are abandoning that which grace has produced. Now, if you remember back to last week, we, we actually walked through four things that grace produces in the life of a believer, remembering that we were trying to help us understand how it is we celebrate God's grace. Because the Christian life is not about doing what's right and avoiding what's wrong. The Christian life is supremely about celebrating the grace of God. And the way we do that is by understanding what it is that grace produces. And so I listed four things that grace produces. The first thing we said that grace produces in the life of a believer is a new identity. 
We are made new in Christ. It's not that we're better. It's not that we have a higher sense of morality. It is that Jesus took the old man. He, he, he took it to the cross. He condemned our sin in the cross. And he left that old man in the grave. And so when we come to faith in Jesus, we're not made better. We're made new. And we have a new identity that is not defined, church. It is not defined by our mistakes. It is not defined by our failures. It is not defined by our screw-ups. But our identity in Jesus, because of that, we are identified by his righteousness. Praise God. We talked about the fact that when God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. He is not ashamed of us. He is not embarrassed of us. He is not regretting the fact that he has saved us because God sees Jesus. So grace produces a new identity. We also talked about the fact that grace produces new fellowship, right? New fellowship. That as we come to Christ, we come into community with a, a group of believers. We live in community and we fellowship together. And keeping with that same thought, the third thing that we said that grace produces is a new family. And it produces a new family because what Christ has done is he has adopted us from, from being in the family of Satan into the family of God. He has brought us in by paying the price. And we are in the family of God through what Christ has done. Receiving that gift by grace through faith. And then the final thing that we talked about that grace produces is a new hope. Is that in light of our identity in Christ, we have hope. We have hope because we are heirs. There's an inheritance waiting for us. We looked at Revelation 21 of what that inheritance entailed. And we find our hope in the fact that we will one day dwell with Jesus. And so that's what grace produces. But what Paul does in our text this morning is he highlights how each of these four areas, each of these products of grace, the churches in Galatia are abandoning them. And it's a challenge for us to be on guard that we too, in the midst of hardship and trial, don't abandon that which grace has produced. You tracking with me? Yes? All right. So again, what I want to do this morning is highlight how the churches in Galatia were abandoning these products of grace previously mentioned and hopefully encourage us, warn us to avoid these same pitfalls when times get tough. So let's get to work. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. The churches in Galatia had abandoned their identity. The churches in Galatia had abandoned their identity. Look again at verses 8 through 11. Paul says, but in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You are observing special days, months, seasons, and years. I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been Wasted. So what Paul does is remind them first and foremost of their status apart from Christ. And he says, you didn't know God and you were enslaved to the things that by nature are not God's. Apart from Jesus, we have talked about this many times, we are slaves to this world, we are slaves to sin, and we are slaves to idolatry. We worship everything and anything but the one to whom worship is due. Apart from Jesus, we worship anything and everything but Jesus. And as a result, the Bible tells us that we are rightly condemned to die. For the wages of sin is what? Death. 
the wages of sin is death. And what Paul is trying to remind them of is that what this world offers and what this world sees as right and good and what this world says you are and should be leads to nothing but slavery and death. Listen, that's why passages like Romans 12, 2 are so important, right? Where, where Paul reminds us not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's not because God is trying to keep you from the fun things of this world. It's not because God wants you to have a boring life. It's because God knows that the things of this world will kill your soul. And so we, we, we fight to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, to be transformed by renewing our minds so that we can live believing that a life in Christ is better than anything that this world has to offer. And sadly, so many people are buying into the lie that this world has satisfaction. But Paul goes on, he says this, but now since you know God, or rather, and I love this, have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? I love how Paul reminds them that it's not as if they were smart enough to figure out who God was on their own but rather that God revealed himself to them. And by Paul making that statement, he is reminding them of what a great God there actually is. Even as we were talking and praying and reading through that psalm, a God who, though he sits high in the heaven, steps into this world and steps into our story and steps into our mess in order to redeem us out of it. It is not that we figured out God and therefore we're saved. It is that God has pursued us. He has loved us. He has called us by name to be his own. And that which God has started, God will finish. That shows how amazing our God is. God chose them and he called them and he pursued them. And yet they think that in the midst of struggle, God has abandoned them. That God has left them. And so Paul asks this question. He says, do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? Do you want to be enslaved to the ways of this world all over again? He says, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. And I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. It's almost as if Paul is saying, let's not be confused here. In an attempt to pursue relief from the struggles you are facing by turning away from your identity in, in Christ, you are not actually pursuing freedom, but you are pursuing again the chains of your slavery, thinking that it will bring life. And in their case, it was the law. When Paul says that they're observing months and, and years and seasons, they were observing the law and trying to find real satisfaction and relief from the struggles of this world in something that will not bring relief. But I want to be clear about this. This isn't a new phenomenon for the people of God. It's not a new phenomenon for the people of God to turn from their identity in God to pursue lesser things thinking that it will bring satisfaction and relief. Consider Israel. Right? Where did God deliver Israel from? Egypt, right? They were in slavery in Egypt. They were in bondage in Egypt. I mean, Pharaoh was killing children. It was a rough place to be. And God, in his gracious love, showed off who he was and delivered them from slavery in, in Egypt and promised to bring them into the promised land. And look at how the people of God responded in Numbers 14 when things got rough. They say, it says the whole community broke into loud cries and the people wept that night. All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron and the whole community told them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt. 
Or if only we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and children will become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. The people of God who had been promised by the very voice of God an inheritance and a promised land in the midst of hardship said, let's go back to our chains. This is the very thing that Paul condemns as the great tragedy of the world in Romans 1. When he says, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. And listen, it says, as a result, people are without excuse for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless. And their senseless hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. And I want to be clear that that same temptation that was present in the Israelites in Numbers 14, the same thing that Paul is addressing in Romans 1, that same temptation is true of us today. In the midst of hardship, hear me church, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of persecution, sometimes unconsciously, we are tempted to revert back to our old ways in order to find satisfaction. The words of God that he spoke in Jeremiah 2 ring true today, that my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Based on Jeremiah 2, we, the people of God, can commit two sins, and only two. First, we forsake God, the spring of living water. We who are believers have tasted the goodness of God, the satisfaction of God, the life that can be found in God, and we abandon that spring of living water. And then it says we do this. We dig our own cisterns, and they're broken, and they can't hold water. Some of you have heard me explain this today. I think that's a very helpful picture because it doesn't say you can't put water in those cisterns. It just says they're broken and they won't hold water. And so what we do is we forsake the spring of living water. We go dig our own cisterns and they're broken. And we keep trying to dump this water in it that will satisfy us. And the craziest thing is there's cracks and there's holes and the water runs out. And so what do we have to do if we want to keep finding satisfaction from that broken cistern? We have to keep putting water in it. And we have to keep putting water in it. And we have to keep putting water in it. And so many of us know where I'm going with this. Because so often we are tempted to believe that our sin will bring us real satisfaction. But if you're honest with yourself. What sin, what way of this world have you run to that has ever brought eternal satisfaction? And here's the thing. And if anyone tells you that sin is not satisfying, they're lying to you. Because sin is very satisfying for a moment. And then that moment passes. And so many of us have become addicts to that moment of satisfaction. And we keep running back to it and running back to it and throwing water in this cistern that will never hold it. And we wonder why our satisfaction will never last because our satisfaction was never to be found in the cisterns of this world. But yes, sin satisfies for a moment. If it didn't, we wouldn't run back to it. Right? Like your anger that you are actively fighting against. Right? There is satisfaction in that moment of explosion when you get to let all your anger out and all your frustration out and you get to tell that person what you really think, but then the moment passes and that satisfaction is gone. 
Brothers and sisters, there is real satisfaction when you turn on your computer and look at those images that are on your computer. It is satisfying for a moment, but it never lasts. And what we are doing is killing ourselves by trying to pour water into this broken cistern, not realizing that we're killing ourselves when all the while here stands the most gracious, loving, eternal being in all of the universe who says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? Like it says in the the Old Testament, come and taste and see if the Lord is not good. And so often we are tempted to forsake the spring of living water to pursue broken cisterns that cannot hold water, thinking that they will satisfy us for eternity. And they will satisfy for a moment. But hear me, and I know I'm beating it into you, they will not satisfy for all of eternity. There is a real temptation, church, in the midst of hardship when we think that God has let us down to turn around. And to look for relief and satisfaction and enjoyment from the things of this world. And again, especially when we believe, even for a moment, that God has failed us. We will run to those things. Paul points this out about the church as he says, you're struggling, you're having a hard time, you're questioning whether this grace thing is worth it, whether this Jesus guy is worth it. And rather than reminding yourselves of what you know and what you have experienced and tasted in the goodness of the Lord, you are pursuing broken cisterns. They had abandoned their identity. But here's the second problem that Paul highlights. Not only had the churches in Galatia abandoned their identity, but they had abandoned their fellowship. The churches in Galatia had abandoned their fellowship. Look at verses 12 through 16. Paul says, I beg you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I also became like you. You have not wronged me. You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh. You did not despise or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So then have I become your enemy because I told you the truth. Again, one thing that grace produces is new fellowship. And Paul points out to the churches that this is another area they have abandoned. They have abandoned their fellowship. And he does this by having them examine their fellowship with him. Now, remember this, right? We talked about this earlier on in this, in this series. One of the strategies that the Judaizers were using to combat this message of grace and promote this message of the law was that they were attacking the very apostleship of Paul. They were attacking whether or not Paul was even a viable apostle. And so they knew, and it's a great tactic, it's a smart move by the enemy. They knew that if they could discredit Paul and prove that he wasn't an apostle, which we know that he is, and he made a case for, but if they could discredit the messenger, they didn't even have to deal with the message of grace because the messenger was already discredited. And so if you can't trust him, you can't trust anything he said. It was a brilliant tactic because it's a whole lot harder to attack grace. It's easier to attack a person. And so that was the strategy that the Judaizers 
use. They didn't have to deal with the theology of the matter. They just had to convince people that Paul was a fraud. And Paul even hints that he understands that this is what's going on when he says there in verse 16, so then have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? He knew the lies that were being spread about him, that Paul is not, not, Paul is not for you. He is not a spokesman for God, but he is an enemy of the faith. He is an enemy of the Old Testament. He is an enemy of the law. Therefore, stay away from him. And so what Paul begins to do is he begins to remind them of their fellowship together. And he writes, you know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh. And you did not despise or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. So Paul recounts the time when he came to him. And he talks about having a weakness in the flesh. And there's some speculation about what that means. Uh, speculation doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter where you land on this. Some people would argue that most likely... Paul was dealing with malaria because of where he had been previously in the low, wet swamplands, malaria was very pre prevalent. And when he went to minister to these churches, he went more to the highlands so that it would kind of clear him up. So some people that argue that it's malaria, some people argue that whatever it was that affected his eyes because of the statement that he says later that you would have cut out your own eyes and given to them to me. It doesn't really matter what the sickness was, but it's very important that Paul highlights that when he came to them, he was sick when he preached the gospel to them. Now, why is this so significant? Well, it's significant because Paul is reminding them of their fellowship and the fact that they believed in the grace of God even when they saw that it didn't alleviate hardship and struggle. See, that's very important. Paul wasn't in the midst of prosperity. He wasn't flourishing by the world's eyes when he came to them and said, look at me, if you buy into this grace, you can have all of this stuff. This dude was dying. And he came to them and preached this message of grace and they believed it. And what that shows us is that they knew that this message of grace was bigger than your earthly circumstances. That this message of grace didn't mean that if you buy into this grace, your life will be easy, that it will be a cakewalk, that you will have health, wealth, and prosperity. And church, you know this as well as I do. So many people are buying into that lie today. That, man, if you have enough faith and you, and you believe in the grace of God, that what that means is that all of your problems will go away and all of the hardship will be taken away. You won't be sick. You won't be in need. You will prosper and God will give you everything you want in this world. The problem is the Bible never says that. Even Paul here says, I came to you and preached a message of grace and you looked at a man who was basically dying and you still believed. And what you believed was that this message of grace was bigger than our circumstances and that hardship in life doesn't diminish the grace of God. And so they did what some of us can so easily do. It is easy for us to look at a brother or sister in the midst of hardship and trial and pain and say, hold on to the grace of God. Hold fast and praise God when we do that. But then the moment that we struggle, the moment that we have a hard time we act as if God's grace is not enough and that's what the churches were doing they looked at Paul and they saw the grace of God evident even in the midst of his suffering but the moment that suffering came upon them they did what so many of us do and say God you have screwed up you screwed up because we can be tempted to buy into the lie that God's grace and his love for us will mean that nothing will ever go wrong in our lives and I I want to tell you that's just not the case. That's just not the case. Jesus was never shy about what following him would bring. The apostles were never shy about telling the churches what it would look like to follow Jesus. It would be painful. 
It would be tiresome. We would have to bear the shame of Christ and the death of Christ, right? Take up your cross and follow me, not take up your money and spend it. That's not what Jesus said. And so the churches in the midst of hardship were, were forgetting the fact that the, the grace of God was sufficient even for Paul in the midst of struggle and they believed in that. Now they're in struggle and they act like it's just not enough. And what this led them to was to pull back from fellowship. They began to see Paul as an enemy, as if his message, his influence in their life had brought all of this hardship on them. But they did. They loved him despite his sickness and hardship. Again, so much so, and I love that Paul points this out to it. He says, so much so that, that you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me if it was possible. That's how much you loved me, and now I've become your enemy. And again, here's why all of this is significant for us. Because this same temptation to pull away from fellowship in the midst of suffering, one, it's not new to the people of God. Remember, we talked about this in the book of Ruth. I think I preached on it. How Naomi, in the midst of trial and suffering and hardship, in an attempt to love Ruth and Orpah, tried to send them away, right? She tried to pull back from fellowship in the midst of her suffering. She tried to keep them at a distance because she thought it was for their good. And we're tempted to do the same thing. When things are going rough, when things are hard, we are tempted to pull back from the fellowship. And this doesn't even mean we have to necessarily pull back in terms of location, stop hanging out with them. You know one of the ways we most often and pull back from fellowship in the midst of hardship? Hey man, how's your week been? When our week has basically been hell on earth and our response is, blessed, having a good week, how are you? you know, that is a lie. And we are pulling back from the, the fellowship that we need. We are pulling back from brothers and sisters who can speak into our lives, speak into our stories, speak into our pain and remind us of the grace of God. But another way we pull back from fellowship, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because I don't want to embarrass you. Um, have you all ever had just one of those weeks? You know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, it's just one of those weeks. You're, you're spent, you're tired, you're exhausted, the weekend hits, and Saturday night you're faced with a real dilemma. Am I going to set my alarm to get up to go to church or am I just so tired and exhausted that I just need a break? I need some rest. I've done that. I've done that. I heard one pastor once say it like this. He said that going to church is as vital for the health of a believer as a blood transfusion is for a sick person. All right, we pull back from the thing where, from, from the fellowship in which we will find life and refreshment and encouragement when we are down and we isolate ourselves, thinking that that will bring us rest. And we pull back from the fellowship. And so that's what they're doing. They've abandoned the fellowship. Now, I do want to mention this because I think it's very important to note. I want you to notice that though they are pulling back from the fellowship, this whole letter is Paul pursuing them in the midst of their foolishness. It is not just the responsibility of the person pulling away from fellowship to press into the fellowship. It is also the responsibility of the fellowship to press into that person that is pulling away. Which means we have to be on guard for one another. We have to be on guard for one another. 
I know that one of the things that we as pastors are trying to do more and more is to pay attention to who's not here on a Sunday, not so that we can go after and be like, why, are you, why weren't you at church? What went wrong? But because we know that at times there's a real temptation to pull back from the fellowship when things are going wrong, and we want to press into the lives of people who are not here if they are in the midst of struggle. Sometimes they're out of town. Great. Hope you had a great trip. But sometimes we get those responses of, man, I was just... I, was, I had so much going on. It was just, I've had a bad week. It's been really, really tough. I just needed a break. And we're not going to jump down their throats, but it's like, man, we want to press into that because we see a temptation there of pulling away from fellowship when things get tough, and we don't want to do that. Amen? You've heard me say it over and over. We need one another. We need one another as we try to celebrate grace. We need one another as we walk in this grace. We need one another as we fight in a world that brings hardship, pain, and struggle. We need one another. Again, the Christian life was never meant to be lived on an island. Never. It's not just you and God. And we're going to talk more about that here in a second when we look at the third thing that they were abandoning. And I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit here. The churches in Galatia, they weren't only abandoning their identity, they weren't only abandoning their fellowship, specifically with Paul, but third, notice that the churches in Galatia had abandoned their family. They had abandoned their family. Look at verses 17 and 18. Paul says, they court you eagerly. Who's the they there? You can talk back. Who is courting them eagerly? The Judaizers, right? They court you eagerly, but not for good. They want to exclude you from me so that you would pursue them. But it is always good to be pursued in a good manner and not just when I am with you. And so what Paul is pointing out is that the churches in Galatia were not only abandoning the fellowship, but when we abandon the fellowship, we will inevitably begin to abandon the family because following the Judaizers and believing that salvation was through the law meant that they were abandoning the grace of God. And the moment we abandon the grace of God, we abandon the family that that grace brings us into. Remember, it is by the grace of God that we are adopted into the family of God. And if we abandon the grace of God, we are abandoning the family of God. And this reminds us of a very important thing, church, that covenant relationship with God demands covenant relationship with the family. Let me say that again, that a covenant relationship with God demands covenant relationship with the family. And the Bible, hear me, has always put a high priority on the family of God. We see this when we look at salvation in almost all of these epistles that they give this beautiful explanation of, of, of how we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Right? We see it in Ephesians, we see it in Colossians, we see it in, in Romans. And after Paul, it's typically Paul in these epistles, after he gives these beautiful, faithful, theologically rich explanations of what it means to be made right with God, the first thing he always talks about is the family of God. Romans 12, right? You've heard me say this. I know I'm repeating it, but we got to keep repeating some of this stuff until we get it. Romans 1 through 11, Paul goes, Paul goes on one of the greatest theological discourses to talk about how we are made right with God, that we are sinners, we deserve death, that, that it's not be, by being an Israelite, but it's about faith in Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. And he gets to Romans 12. It's the great transition statement. Therefore, 
Present yourself as living sacrifices. And he talks about don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what's the very first thing he tells them to renew their mind about? The family of God. He says, but God has gifted you to serve in the family of God. You are a part of it. So use your gifts for the good of the family. Ephesians, right? Chapters 1 through 3. Again, Paul giving a theological explanation of how we are made right with God. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And then he gets to Ephesians 4. And the very first thing he talks about is the oneness of the body, yet the diversity of the body that reflects the Trinitarian unity and diversity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I know that was a lot, but in a nutshell, he talks about the family of God. That's always where they go after salvation. They don't start with reading your Bible. They don't start with prayer. They don't start with giving of tithes and offerings. They start with, hey, find your place in the family of God because you are a part of this family, praise God. The Bible has never been shy about the priority of the family of God. One of my favorite stories, but one of the most challenging stories, is in the book of Matthew when Jesus is teaching inside of a house. And he's got disciples and he's got people with them and they are listening to him. And it says that his mother and his brothers show up outside the house and they basically say, hey, we need to talk to... We need to talk to Jesus. We need to talk to our son and our brother. And Jesus makes this profound statement. Do you know what it is? He looks at the people around him and he said, these are my mother and my brothers. Now, let's pause for a minute and just talk about how crazy that is, but how amazing that is. If some of you are at my house and we fellowship in as the family of God, right? We're chilling, whatever, uh, eating food because we like to eat food, and we're all hanging out in my living room, right? And, and I have two brothers. Uh, John is my older brother. Matthew's my younger brother. I have a mother, and she's here. So this analogy breaks down because she's in the family of God, but you'll get the picture. But let's say that they come to my house while we're all chilling. We're talking about Jesus, how great he is, what he's doing in our lives. We're just fellowshipping together. And my mother and my brothers knock on the door, right? So somebody opens the door. Let's say Mike Hayes opens the door. He said, can I help you? My mother and my brother say, we're here to see Michael. I want to see my son, they want to see their brother, which probably means we got to talk about something important if they're showing up at my house together. It probably means I screwed up, which would be a high probability. And I look at all of you guys and I say, hmm. I look to them and I say, these are my mother and my brothers. That's not going to go over really well with my mom and my brothers. Right, let's call it what it is. They're going to be like, mm, like, like family meals are going to get really difficult after that. Like Sunday dinners are going to get tough. If I'm like, you're not my mother and my brothers. These are my mother and my brothers. But that's exactly what Jesus did. And what he is doing is he's prioritizing the family of God over the blood family, which is something that we often get really backwards. Amen? What's the sentiment that's always said? Blood is what? And what's my response to that? Unless the water's baptism. Yeah, blood is thicker than water unless that water is the waters of baptism because the family of God is the most significant relationships that we will have on this earth. God, Jesus, the apostles, the Bible has always prioritized the family of God, which is why it is such a dangerous thing to see these churches turning from the family to pursue the Judaizers and this false family. But there is a real temptation when things get tough to see the church as insignificant, unnecessary, and oftentimes as perpetuating the problem. And we have to guard against a temptation that can flare up in us to say, I'm done with the church. 
I'm done with the family of God. And again, I want to be really clear on that. It doesn't mean that the family of God has always gotten everything right. And it is really difficult to not abandon the family of God when your hardship and your struggle stems from things that the church has gotten wrong, typically. Let me give you a couple examples, and I really wish I could press into this, but I am about out of time right now. One of the areas where the church has failed is in cases of sexual abuse, specifically with kids. And if you are in the midst of hardship and struggle and pain because that is something that you are going through, and you look at the church and say, they have botched it, I'm going to pull back from them, that is a dangerous thing to do. The church has its faults, it has its failures, but we need people like you to press into the family of God to help the family of God look more like Jesus, right? One of the things that the church, specifically in America, has gotten really wrong is the issue of race. And sometimes there's a temptation, specifically for my, our minority brothers and sisters, to look at the church and see the failure of the church and say, man, I'm done with the church. But we have to remember that God never gives us that option because what is God redeeming? The church, his bride, and it is broken and it is still fragile and it is still being made collectively into the image of God. But we cannot pull back from the family of God, even with all of its mistakes and errors, because God is redeeming his bride unto himself. And again, I, I know that was a lot to drop and not press into. And by the grace of God, we'll get to do that soon. But I just want to encourage you that in the midst of pain, in the midst of hardship, we cannot pull back from the family of God. Here's the fourth and final thing I want you to see. The churches in Galatia had not only abandoned their identity, had not only abandoned fellowship, and it had not only abandoned the family, but here's the most devastating part of it where this progression leads. The churches in Galatia had abandoned their hope. Look at the last two verses of our text this morning, and Paul speaks with such endearing words, and he says, My children, my children. I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. And that line in the middle of that is so important. I am suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. Because listen, Christ in us is the hope of glory. And Paul looks at them and says, I don't see Christ in you. Which means that the hope of glory, the hope that they have, they're abandoning it. If Christ is not in them, and if they are not in Christ, then they are lost. And there is no hope apart from Jesus. And I want to just encourage you as we come to a close, remind you that in the midst of great trial, in the midst of great struggle, in the midst of great pain, even what you might be in right now in this room, Christ is our hope. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter, beginning in, uh, 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 6, you rejoice in this even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though, you, though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And what Peter is pushing the churches to is to remember that in the midst of struggle, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of persecution, though you are tempted to pull back from the things that grace has produced, Peter is 
calling you to press into Jesus because it is in him and him alone that you will find your hope. So let me end by saying this, Christian, Christian, brother and sister, you may be here and you may be struggling. You may be questioning whether following Jesus is worth it. You may be questioning whether or not you were sold a bad bill of goods. But I want to encourage you and plead with you, don't turn back. Don't turn back because the only thing that this world has to offer you is chains and slavery and death. Don't turn back back. I'm reminded by a quote I've shared with you many times because it has been one that I have held on to and has been an encouragement to my soul in this current season of life that I'm in. It was St. Augustine's words when he said that when we look for hope in this world, he says, you are looking for a blessed life in a land of death and it is not there. There is no hope in this world apart from Jesus. There is no life in this world apart from Jesus. There is no lasting satisfaction apart from Jesus. And when you are tempted to turn around and pull back, I plead with you by the grace of God to press into your identity and press into fellowship and press into the family and be reminded of the hope that you have in Jesus. And if you are here and you are not a Christian, I want to tell you, very clearly that what this world has to offer you will not save you. It will not bring lasting joy. It will not bring lasting satisfaction. And if you're honest, you've probably experienced some of that, that, that you kind of always seem to be longing for something. Well, the problem is you're trying to fill a hole in your life that can only be filled by Jesus Christ. But there is hope extended to you today. Right? Jesus Christ came and he lived a perfect life, though we had failed, though we had sinned and rebelled against God and we couldn't do what God called us to do and we deserved death. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we should have lived and he died in our place. And he took all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our condemnation on himself. He died, we buried him, he rose three days later declaring victory. And you are invited into life and hope and satisfaction that is found only in Jesus by trusting in what he has done on the cross and turning from your sins and following after him. So if you are here and you have not believed in Jesus, I plead with you to do so this morning because there is life and life abundantly in him. Life will still be tough. Amen, Christians? There will still be hard moments. We will struggle. But in the midst of that, we have a hope because this light momentary affliction is creating an eternal weight of glory.